0: From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Suwannee Review Podcast. So, I'm here today with Christopher Spade for the Suwannee Review Podcast, and Chris, you're here in Suwannee for this year's Aiken Taylor Award in Modern American Poetry where we've all had the great pleasure this week of celebrating the work of Garrett Hongo, but we've also had the incredible pleasure of hearing you lecture and talk about Garrett's work. It's been the best kind of celebration because it's not only celebrating the work, but it's celebrating the different ways we engage with that work. And so we're incredibly grateful to you for being here.
1: Oh, thanks so much. It's a huge pleasure to be here, to celebrate Garrett especially. It's, I don't know, kind of a
0: critic's dream.
1: So why is that? Why is it a critic's dream? Well, I've always been someone whose relation to poetry, whose engagement with it, from my very first informative reading experiences, has had criticism alongside it or prefacing it or helping me through it or deepening it. And I just from the start, I would read a poet and think, oh man, I wish someone could help me with this. Or I I would love to have a second, third angle on it. And you get those in such sparing chunks with poets. Maybe you'll have a great reading of one poem, a uh, fantastic review of one book that can spend 2,000 words on it. But it's kind of rare that anyone gets to, to tour you through an entire life and career and just every book in order and how each one prepares you and sets you up for the next. As someone who likes to go along in my writing, as you, my editor know very well, I'm always itching for a chance to say one more thing, look at one more poem, another book. And I have finally got to, to do it, the chance to do it with a, a poet I've always thought about and adored. He's also someone I've never written on before. So it's, I've been building up things to say, <laughs> poems I've loved. And finally, I got to stuff them into one big feast of a critical celebration. Yeah, yeah.
0: And it was exactly that. What is it about Garrett's work that has... Has meant a lot to you, or has loomed large in in your imagination?
1: Yeah, it's. I actually, I'm glad we're talking about it now because I didn't get to say my personal route to Garrett's work in the lecture. I first heard about him through his anthology, the The Open Boat. On one side, I'm Chinese American, and as soon as I was reading poetry, I was looking for for different Asian American poets, not not necessarily as my only route into poetry, not necessarily as, as models, but I just wanted to know where in this vast expanse of literature in English were there people with histories like my mother's, like my grandparents, and like mine. And I found a lot of them in that book, which is, it has such a like diverse sampler of poets I still think about and teach and write about today, from Aga Shahid Ali, the Kashmiri American poet, to, well, no, not. I mean, it has Garrett's own poems in it. I think John Yao, one of my favorite poets ever, is in that book. So I guess in the beginning he was kind of my, I don't know, MC to the party, or he was the one who, who pointed the way to many different poets. And then eventually I, I had a chance to to read his own poetry. I'm some. I'm a completist with everything, with music, with movies, and I think I started from the beginning. And just to read his first book, Yellow Light, as a teenager or 20-something poet. I don't know, it's such a, a lesson in in how to to sketch out your life and the major players in it, your father, mother, brother, the important scenes. I don't know, it was kind of a syllabus in, in how to, to write about the self in a multi-ethnic, confusing, history-haunted America. And then I just had to read everything else. <laughs> I mean, one of the great things of of this lecture is there's not anything like it I can think of where where a critic is handed the assignment of like go home for the summer and just and read it all, think about this person. So I had the chance to be the completest with his work that I always hoped to be. I hadn't read all of all of his most recent I hadn't read all his prose, and I'm so grateful I did. I hadn't had a chance to read the poems since his most recent book, Coral Road, including a, a bunch in the Swanney Review that I don't know, I mean they're up there with the best of his work. And as someone who writes a lot about contemporary poetry, it's there's no cheat code for for writing about the poems that came out in 2018 or 2020. Um you get to be the first person to think about that and try to offer your your thoughts, your explanation, your appreciation. So, I was really grateful to do that too.
0: And I wonder if there's a connection there because I feel like I th- I feel like that is one of the there's always a void in the moment of how the work is received, right? I mean, there might be a couple of reviews or it might be, might win an award and get on a lot of people's radar. But in terms of actual critical engagement or in the case of The Open Boat, a sort of contextual engagement with presenting to not every reader, but a a reader of a certain orientation or bent, which who needs this, who needs to have another voice beside them or or would just like that companionship Mm -hmm. and i feel like that that was absolutely the spirit that animated garrett's effort as an anthologist and was absolutely evident in in your lecture and appreciation of his work which is there is especially for a poet like garrett whose work is so interested in navigating certain kinds of silence Mm -hmm. these types of silences in terms of anthologies in terms of this particular sort of gathering of diasporas Mm -hmm. in a way and also in terms of this poet who has incredible stretches between books there is both a quiet and a patience in that that you have an opportunity to write into
1: yeah yeah i i love that it is his poetry it is (laughs) it's not often about parties it's not it's not always joyous and and celebrating but there's always other people there with you. It's like he's like the rap artist that shows up in your your phone on Spotify and it says featuring whoever. There are Garrett Hongo poems featuring family, Garrett Hongo poems featuring his teacher Robert Hayden or his, his friends um, Alan Lau and Lawson Anada who showed up in some of the first poems I talked about. This, the talk I gave yesterday, one of the conceits was I was looking at Garrett Hongo as a poet of extended play. And I do think he's someone who's kind of always extending. He's extending welcomes to other people. He's extending across those silences and those kind of uh, histories with holes in them that that are fraying and that c- can't quite hold things together, which made him a great poet to celebrate because, I don't know, the poems are often extending themselves to us, to strangers, to Sewanee, Tennessee, or to Somerville, Massachusetts, where I'm from. It's not, for, for all of its specificity in certain lives in certain histories and diasporas it wants to talk to you like you eric <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. and you chris um, and yeah. you whoever's listening
0: i've been trying to come to my little my list of how i would if someone asked me what marks garrett hongo's work what are what are some of the ways you would describe it and some of the things i've landed on is as i said for a poet who is so interested in and sort of at his apogee in terms of music, mm. there is this, this great delving into silence. Yeah, There is uh, an, an intense engagement with the idea of of the poem as archive, as mm-hmm. this repository. But there's also, as you said, in all of his work, an incredible generosity, both in terms of this engagement with the reader, wherever they are and whoever they are, and in terms of the generosity of the poem itself on the page of of what he makes room for it to contain, that I just, I find so enriching for me as a reader, and I'm so grateful for it as a reader. So I think your idea of thinking about it in terms of extended play is is so apt in terms of his own preoccupations.
1: Oh, thanks. But now I'm wishing I I approached it the way you just did, because I think that extension to other people, and in conjunction with telling histories and delving into things that just no one else has written about or recorded. I mean, I can't think of many poets who are able to do both those things. He has poems about historic events that I would want to know more about, and I'd look them up. and I would on Google, I would just get his poems because <laughs> he was the first person to to note it down. He would base poems off of stories heard, secondhand, newspaper clippings collages of, of different voices and and ephemera he found. and In some ways, he's one of our great poet historians and poet, I don't know, anthologists, even in the work of his own poems. And then to share that with us, to make that so available and open for a reader. There's an interview I found with him where he says he writes for the uninitiated. Uh, and I think that's a very I don't know, that's a hard thing to do in contemporary poetry. There's a lot of knowledge assumed, a sense of coolness maybe, or a certain tastes assumed. But I think he is trying to write for just about anyone who wanders into his reading or opens one of his books.
0: I think that's an incredible insight into Garrett's work. One thing I I I think I would add to that mm-hmm. in terms of who's uninitiated is I often feel like Garrett is writing back to and I think you said this yesterday. He's he's one of the uninitiated he's writing back to is that young Garrett Hongo mm-hmm. yeah. who is who is so hungry to uncover his own history, to, to give voice to the silence in his own familial, historical, cultural background.
1: Right. Yeah, writing back to him, writing back to a father and a grandfather who didn't speak the English he was trained to speak or didn't speak the English of. The, they didn't speak in the I mean, who does? They didn't speak in the blank verse of Milton and Wordsworth. They didn't speak in Whitmanian unrolling sentences. And in taking up those forms, he's trying to include retrospectively, those family members and write kind of the hypothetical, "What if I could speak to you in this? What if you could receive it the way I do?" I don't know. It's a very strange moving thing to to speak to the dead in a language that that maybe they wouldn't have understood in life. But in the hypothetical dream space of a poem, you can make the connection happen. He's not to get too like nerdy and academic now, but there's a lot of talk in poetry studies about apostrophe and address as maybe the thing that makes poetry itself, poetry's ability to address a you. And I don't know, his poetry is so rich for thinking about that. Because he's so often speaking to something that's not there, or something that couldn't quite be there the way the poem imagines it, but he makes that so vivid. One of the poems I talked about yesterday, Oban Dance for the Dead, it's a poem about how he has no traces, no evidence to work with when he's speaking to his family members. But the entire time you read it, you—it's as clear as a phone call, <laughs> um, or as intimate as a conversation at the dinner table. It kind of gets you to forget that. Th- that maybe he doesn't have these memories and photographs and practices he wishes he had.
0: It's an interesting kind of imagined history, imagined ekphrasis almost, mm-hmm. right? He's, there's this this photo album of pictures that were never taken. Yeah, there's. Um, I mean, I, I'm thinking about that the that poem in Yellow Light, Stepchild, mm-hmm. right, which is very much about, which is an incredibly ambitious attempt for a a poet as young as he was. Oh yeah, of collage and historical document and asking really seeking questions about in the aftermath of this silence, and in the absence of documentation, in the absence of storytelling, what is my responsibility? Sure, yeah. And I think he he does it, I mean, as you said, just the act of imagination required for that excavation is incredible. But then to do it in a way that that makes you feel as if you don't have to clear this impossibly high bar in terms of your knowledge, either of of poetics or your knowledge of of the subjects he's uncovering for you, right? Yeah,
1: I'm so. There's some poems I would read in Yellow Light and all the books as I was rereading this summer, and I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Garrett Hongo wrote these poems, so I don't have to. <laughs> I'm so glad. So in Stepchild, he offers, he gives a syllabus of Asian American literature partway through. He says these are the ten or twelve books I think we've been working with, and then he lists them, and it's. I mean, that's better than any, I don't know, Twitter recommendation of right. books to read or a listicle of these are the 10 to 12 Asian American books you need to read. It's a poem that, that goes through the history of immigration from the Chinese Exclusion Act to now. And again, that's as a, someone who's an educator and a teacher, I'm, I'm so glad that there's a poem that I can present to students to bring them through that history and show how it was navigated by someone who feels it so viscerally. Instead of just sending them the Wikipedia page for the Chinese Inclusion Act, which is one form of education, but it's, it's not the lyric embodied historicized version.
0: As we're talking about Garrett's work, I'm, I'm already, it's the question I was going to ask you about how do you find your way as a critic, I think is already emerging very clearly. Because I, I feel like we already see some of your preoccupations as, yeah. a, as an educator, as a completist. As a practitioner. But I I am curious, just your role as a as a scholar and as a critic, both of contemporary literature, but you've also written on Wallace Stevens, you've written on James Merrill. And so there is a there's a deep engagement on your part with an incredibly wide swath of American poetry and poetics. And what I'm I'm grateful to you for is that. Often you're writing toward authors and into the spaces those authors occupy that haven't been talked about, mm-hmm. that are discoveries for me in the work. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, about your own about your own curiosity as a critic. You know, what, how do you find your way into the things that you've been curious about as a as a scholar and a critic?
1: Oh, I think the real irresponsible answer is I find things by not doing my work. <laughs> I find things <laughs> by when I should be working on an academic essay I'm instead scrolling through twitter or leafing through a journal or answering texts from friends who were like have you heard of this person so apologies to my academic commitments as i go chase every possible distraction i don't know it's hard to say as i said earlier from the start i always approached the art of poetry with the criticism of poetry the first, my first model for any writing on poetry was an academic. It was great reviews,
0: hmm.
1: uh, which was I, a lesson I had to unlearn as I had to write my first academic essays. And all I wanted to do was say punchy, quotable things with maybe not much depth, but maybe a great sound. And I, I think maybe that's still the way I, I I think about poetry. Is I I want someone's take on it. I respond to. Recommendations and insults and pans of poems. I, I guess I just follow wherever people are enthusiastic about poetry. The a sad truth about contemporary poetry today is that even the books that you think are the hugest books, the books that everyone's talking about, they maybe only have two reviews of them written. They probably don't have a deep considered two to three to five thousand word piece on them and it's that seems a tragedy to me that's not how it was 20 40 50 years ago um, you can look up any famous book from mid-century and there's eight to ten people writing about it and it's fantastic poets and critics and I guess I kind of see what I'm doing is is trying to to rectify that a bit just even if I'm not going to get it perfectly right at least I'm trying to say something about it why people care about this book, why I care about this book. So, all the books I've written about for for you, they've all been, for the most part, first or, or second books, and then sometimes selected books. And I'm hoping just to lay the the barest foundation for people to think and talk about these poets. I've been curious about that because I
0: I think about my own experience, my own training, which I think tracks with yours, which is, they were the books I was taught, or I was encouraged to go seek out. And when I did so, I could find the, the appreciation of others who had who had had similar encounters, experience with those books. But there is a there is a velocity of the contemporary moment mm-hmm. that that it seems like that work. I think it's being. I mean, it's clearly being done. I mean, I know you're doing it. Um, I know there are there are other critics who I'd really admire who are doing it right now. I'm so grateful for the amount of great work in American poetry that's happening right now. And I am so hungry for these more deeply considered engagements with that work. I sometimes wish there was a, a sort of pause button every year where like there was some, some conference or some zoom where like the critics got together and said, okay, who's, who's, who's divvying up what? And, uh, you got, you got 5,000 words. Go long and see what happens.
1: Yeah, I I'd be up for that too. Yeah, sometimes I do wonder if we just took a pause on book publications for a while for everyone to catch up. <laughs> what good that would do. I yeah, I, it's funny because I it's not it's not as though people don't want to read about the books they love. Right. That say maybe there isn't a review of your favorite debut book of this year, but you might be able to find some friend or stranger poet on Twitter just saying here's 30 reasons why I love this poem. And people will read it and go find that book and buy that book and follow that poet. So I do I do think there's kind of a hunger for it. My first obsession in art was music, pop music. Hmm. And I'm pretty envious of the way that a single could come out and there are reviews of that song that day. Even It's not going to be right, but it's going to be three paragraphs of impressionistic response to this song and what it made one person feel and what songs it reminds them of and here are links to to forerunners and here are links to people who are doing it better and i kind of wish that we could have that response time in poetry right but also as someone who takes forever to write i get why yeah yeah (laughs) why we don't there was that
0: for me and in terms of of my sort of initial growth as a writer there was a time when poetry blogs and mp3 blogs were both like the place you went to discover things and it was exactly that experience it was someone excited about you know a new single or new song new album and then saying this reminds me and here's a playlist and of course they were just pirated mp3s it was great because you could you could get so much new music that way but poetry was the same way it was um, someone would would say i just read so and so's poem in you know some magazine And then, you know, you'd have all these people in the comments and for good or bad, you know, people were saying like, oh, that, that poem is terrible or, oh, that poem is amazing. Or if you like that, you should read this. And there was this enmeshing of conversation around and it it wasn't everything. It wasn't, of course, it wasn't the clear survey of everything that was out there. But being able to touch down in other people's enthusiasm is, is such a, such a gift when you. You don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. And having someone who's been there to be like, I'm excited about this. is It's, a, it's terrific.
1: Yeah. It is funny. I me, assumed when I started reading poetry that the critics I read, people with MFAs and PhDs, that they did know everything that was going on. And now that I'm closer to that person, I still cannot keep up with everything that's going on. It is, sometimes it's, it's a numbers game. <laughs> I mean, you asked earlier how I find the things I like. And sometimes it's just pure chance. There's There are a hundred poetry books coming out this year that I won't even get a chance to read until next year. And I'm sure the best book that came out this year, I won't hear about for months until someone forces it on me or makes me reconsider it or reread it. MP3 blogs, that's a good comparison because... I mean, that's kind of the expanse we're talking about. That not only American poetry, but just the globe in every language. Now it's, it's easier than ever to, to run into poems in translation, poems mm-hmm. that are being recovered. And yeah, I think sometimes you need a snotty person on a blog to, to give their vote yay or nay, or to, to rave about it or pan it. Yeah. To get you to pay attention. One thing actually I would add is that, something i did just for one year that exploded my sense of poetry even more was i read submissions for for the nation for a year and i'm sure you now you go through this on a daily basis but whatever whatever you think of poetry is once you're confronted with just a hundred submissions a day <laughs> uh it turns out it's way way larger and it's kind of cool to to read submissions for something where Pulitzer Prize winners and people who've never been published before send to the same inbox. Yeah, um, it's strangely democratic. It's kind of hilarious to see. It turns out that first time poets maybe write friendlier emails than <laughs> <laughs> than former poet laureates. I'm not going to name names, but um, I, again, it's I don't know. I thought earlier that that studying contemporary poetry getting a PhD in it would give me some purchase on that world and it has it's given me lots of frames and and ways of understanding it but it just keeps on getting larger by the second the
0: only thing I'm that makes me sad about that is is the the lack of my own ability to pay attention yeah. I, just, I wish they were more of me to, to soak it all in. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at librarysewaneeedu backslash Ralston. One of the great pleasures I think of not only having having you write for us for the review is that I really cherish our email correspondences about like, what are you reading? And there's just there's always this sort of evolving list of I'm really excited about this book and this book is coming out. And I read these poems as they were coming out in journals. And and it's there's always this, this evolving list of enthusiasms that I feel like. In so many ways. It's it's great that we live in this moment. Not only is there so much of it, there is so there's so many easier ways to to talk about these enthusiasms. Whereas when I, I I feel like when I was first trying to make my way into poetry and criticism, I felt like I was it was like the only thing I had was, you know, the past 10 years of best American poetry at the library. And yeah. that was kind of it. I didn't know where else to look. Outside of what my teachers would recommend to me.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it's I also was someone who got a, a really wide exposure to poetry through the best American poetry series. And it's it's tricky when that's your your gateway to American poetry and it has the word best in it, and you don't like a lot of it. And you wonder, well, where do I go from here? Again, we were talking about Garrett's anthology before the open boat. That was an early important exposure for me, but I didn't get a chance to read its its opponents. I didn't get a chance to see the anthologies that were written before or collected before and after it. To I don't know to widen my sense of certain debates and sides in American poetry. So yeah, I mean one thing I'm grateful for as an academic is you get to see all of these books in some wider history. You get to follow the beefs. (laughs) You get to see who was writing against who. You get to see what the sides are, and that is one thing i try to think about when i write about contemporary poetry is how to group things and categorize things and it's one way to deal with i mean the mass of of poetry that it's coming through our inboxes and arriving in bookshops is is trying to find trends and, and ways to understand it it's not being a, a weather forecaster for poetry is not something i'm great at I'm, i think i'm someone who's more comfortable with smaller units with telling you why i love a line telling you why i love a poem telling you why i love a poet but it does seem like an important job for the critic today to do, especially as I don't know our sense of poetry, not just on the page but in performance in videos in music is just getting wider and wider
0: well, so then that's what i'm gonna, I'm going to ask you 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 as a as a critic of contemporary poetry less I think because I think this is one of the things I value about your criticism is that it's it is not. It's not driven by the superlative, right? It's not driven by that categorization of better or best. It's more about personal fascination for you. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do, you know, I'm gonna kind of put you on the spot, which is how's the health of contemporary poetry? Like what's, how's it doing? How are we doing?
1: I think it's going pretty well, with the caveat that at any given time in poetry, 90% of it you're not going (laughs) to like. I think there's always the work of triage and sifting and criticism, finding the things you like and the things you don't. I'm glad you said I'm not a poet or a critic who thinks in superlatives because I don't. I guess I think more in in tastes and hungers and what you want to get out of poetry. A poet I've been reading in full recently is the late poet C.D. Wright. In order to to write an essay on her. And she has an amazing line in one of her, in her first prose book, where she someone tells her that poetry is like food and that opens everything up for her. And she says, that allowed me to not like Robert Lowell or Rocky Mountain Oysters. As soon as I heard that. And as someone who loves Robert Lowell and is a vegetarian and won't eat Rocky Mountain Oysters, I still love that sentiment. I still love that idea that. That poetry is like food and you're not going to like things no matter what. You're going to be able to learn. You're going to be able to acquire a taste for something. But there's certain things you hunger for and certain things you don't. And going to the state of contemporary poetry, I've been finding recently in the people I talk to who, who hunger for poetry that, that they're able to find the things they like and they're able to expand their, their tastes to, to realize that poetry can do things for them they didn't know they wanted or didn't know they needed. There's every 10 years brings the the alarm bells that it's over for poetry. And yet I've never found someone who cares about poetry who wasn't able to find something they liked in a new book. I mean, maybe you'll like other periods better. It's very funny to teach teenagers and young 20-somethings as undergraduates who just have like a deep abiding connection with Wordsworth. And they just want to live that life in the hills, uh, in the lakes of England. Or I've had I've had so many students who they just, T.S. Eliot speaks their language. And they, I feel bad for them. They want to be jail for proof rock. <laughs> <laughs> they want to roll up their trousers. Um, I'm not that guy. But I don't know. I've just, I've never been concerned for poetry. There's a lot more things in the world to be concerned about. And poetry for me isn't one of them.
0: So I will ask you, though, just because you you said the word, as a critic, as a reader, as a writer, what are you hungry for in
1: contemporary poetry? Well, I do think of poetry and food as the two closest things often. And if I'm a food critic of the, the poetry world, I do feel like, I don't know, I have to be as equal as possible. I can't confess there are certain things that I'd have a distaste for, or if I have a distaste for them, I, f- I have to wonder why and think, the people who like this, why do they like this? I will say just my personal bent, I'm always looking for just the, that, what was that feeling? To read a poem and think, oh, you can do that. I'm someone who's was trained on on forms, and I'm just always geeky about, is a poem doing something formally either with are the received forms we know, like sonnets and sestinas and villanelles, or with just the forms we find in the world from questionnaires to album minor notes, I'm always interested in a new formal move. But I don't know, it's it's hard to say. There's some lines that take the top of your head off, and that happens before you know why. And maybe the work of the critic is to like put the head back on, put it all back together, And figure out how it did that to you. I will say that I read a lot of poetry, and I can't confess to reading it all with my perfect attention. And if a poem can stop you in your tracks as you have 50 other things going on, and a recommendation letter to write, and dinner to worry about, (laughs) and friends to keep in touch with, then if a poem can make you a worst person for a day, because <laughs> you'd rather read it than deal with your responsibilities, that's a pretty good poem.
0: Do you know what the first poem was that did that for you? That, that, that made you a bad person for a day?
1: Yeah, it was One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. It was the first poem I read. And at the time, when I first read it, I didn't know what to make of it. But it would just show up in my head some days. Elizabeth Bishop, in a slightly different context, said that a poem was done if you go to walk around the world for 24 hours and everything looked like it. And after I really digested One Art, a poem I'm still digesting decades later, but after I had, I don't know, tried it out for the first time, just everything looked like One Art in a way that you'd be in a conversation with someone and it's your turn to talk and you're thinking about One Art. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you have to, I don't know, snap back to reality. I think it's that, yeah. And I was not a poetry person at the time. It may be, I think thousands of people can say this, but Elizabeth Bishop was one of the people that made me a poetry person by just lodging certain lines and poems and moods and thoughts in my head that I'd be in psychology class and I wouldn't be paying attention because I'd be thinking of Elizabeth Bishop. Or I'd say a phrase... In conversation. And i think, oh, that sounded good. And I'd realize, oh, yeah, you're plagiarizing, dude. <laughs> you just took that from a poem you read that's added to the the vocabulary of your life. She was one of those. And two of the other poets you mentioned, Paul Stevens and James Merrill, poets who, after I've read them for a bit, I don't know, it's like I've picked up a, a power-up in Super Mario. It's like, I have my James Merrill syntax now. I have my Wallace Stevens abstraction now in probably ways that are incomprehensible to to non-poetry people but it seems to add to the the spaciousness of your brain and your capacity for language do you remember the first poet for you or the first poem there were I guess
0: I make a distinction because there I I think I mean I was an English major and I, I read the poetry that I was assigned but it and this was out of my own ignorance, I just did not, I did not feel that they were they were poets who were writing for me. They were poets that I appreciated. You know, I I read my Milton, I read my Wordsworth, I read my Blake, and I thought this is terrific. But there was both the temporal distance and the and the sort of canonical distance between me and their work that felt insurmountable. But I do remember I took a contemporary or 20th-century poetry class my senior year of college, I had terrible senioritis. I skipped like, I think I skipped the first week of that class. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Chad Davidson. Uh,
1: Statue of Lamentations is over. It's got to be over, yeah. right?
0: And we read Priscilla Becker's first book.
1: Oh, wow, well, yeah.
0: And there's a poem in there and I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering the lines, but there was this moment in the poem that I remember that that the gloss of it was someone said to me once, you can't ignore the 20th century. <laughs> and then there's this break of of white space and she says watch me Mm -hmm. and I just thought there there was I thought that was incredible that was the poem that I I carried around in my world for for 24 hours of course my world was circumscribed by the small town that I lived in but for the world that I inhabited I, I just I could not shake that the boldness of that and also the and you know now I have the vocabulary for or more of a vocabulary for why that was so effective. And, you know, I, I think about the way that has sparked my own interest in the imperative, like as a, as a mood in American poetry, that instructive kind of authority, uh, which I think is both asserted and undermined in so much of late 20th century American poetry. Uh, but that's one of the ones that, that I, I've carried around for a really long time. So of contemporary poetry, I'd say, Say it was Priscilla Becker.
1: Oh, that's great, and I think that's well. Now I'm going to carry that line around with me all day. I don't know, like the the best lines of poetry I know. It's it's somehow more than just a line, or it's way more than a line. It's an attitude. It's a bearing. It's a way to talk to history. Just watch me. (laughs) I love that.
0: So. This is where I do want to I want to change things up a little bit and talk to you about cuz we talked about your work as a critic and how you got there and what you're doing now but you're also a poet. It's not to say <laughs> I say that almost like I'm not uh it's not with any surprise because I think if I think anyone who reads your criticism is going to see the the attention you pay to other people's work is to me evidence of a deep imagination, a deep well of imagination that and curiosity that I think through a slightly different approach to the mirror of who Christopher Spade is as a writer in the world, it's it's a we see exactly how it's reflected in your work.
1: Oh um, that's very kind of you to say it's my mind is going in so many directions when I think about poets and critics and poets doing the work of critics. In some sense, I'm kind of skeptical of the idea that you have to be a poet in order to write poetry criticism. And I'm skeptical because I think now the norm is that poets are assigned to write reviews. And they do fantastic jobs and they they point out things that don't come up in English classes and don't come up they maybe they come up in craft workshops, they come up when you're sitting at the desk to write a poem. But so many of my favorite critics never wrote a poem. My One of the first critics who got me into poetry, and she eventually became one of my advisors, is Helen Vendler. And she, I think she took great pride in that she was a, a critic who wanted to understand what it was like for this poet to write a poem. Something she would do, and I, I have done this myself, I really do recommend it. When she was really trying to understand a poem, she would get out, a piece of paper and a pen and she would write it out because she wanted to know what it felt like to write every new word or to write a line and then just to know that's it that line's done time to move to the next almost in a just like a pre-conscious physical way to write out the line seasons season of a and mellow fruitfulness the first line of Keats's to autumn and, and just to know that that one's done, I can move to the next one. Or even to know season of and then the Mad Lib line is under it and you think, what's the noun that goes there? And to think of myths. And I, I just love that in her criticism that as someone who's not a poet, that she is able to inhabit the, the seat in, the, in the, the pen of the poet so vividly. And at the same time, I do love poets who write about poetry and know how poems are built. One of my favorite critics and one of my favorite poets was the late James Longenbach, And when he writes about a poem, he writes as someone who knows the nuts and bolts. He's someone who's very happy to get geeky about line breaks, about why why use the word A instead of the word the here, which is something a poet can go bonkers thinking about. And if I tried to explain to my aunts and uncles who don't care about poetry in the slightest— they would change the conversation. <laughs> yeah. So when I write criticism, I I am often thinking about if I were this poet, how would I construct it or as a poet who writes in my own way, how am I thinking about the construction? But I do hope that that people reading my criticism they don't feel like they need to be a poet to to read this work. I mean I, I teach poetry classes and I know that most of my students aren't going to grow up to be poetry critics or poets, but I do want them to be people who are receptive to poetry and to language generally. And I, I guess I try to write for for them to to for those uninitiated readers, I guess.
0: I am hoping we can carve out a little time to to hear some of your work and yeah, talk about to. it a little bit. Yeah. I wondered if you would read a poem that was published recently of yours that I really enjoyed, which is it's called "Fair Trade Sonnet." in an issue of Plowshares earlier this year.
1: Yeah. Would you? I'd love to. What I will say about this poem before I read it is that sometimes you have to do things just for the pun. And I did come up with the idea of calling something a fair trade sonnet and to have it be about fair trades. <laughs> I didn't know what it was going to be, but maybe as with a lot of poems I write, a bad idea gets you into it, and then you find the good idea once you're in the middle of it. Fair Trade Sonnet A horse, a horse, my dumb king for a horse. My brand new horse, the naysaying centrist for state senate. The swayed back seat of my thousand-horsepower hearse for a spare ten thousand hours to practice basic survival. The fine art of making a slow exit look painless. My last supper for an everlasting grain of salt to dose my days with flavor. Act now, and they'll toss in tasting notes for savoring every hand that feeds you. One pinch of insult per punch of injury. Those better selves were forever beta testing. I'm selling mine for parts. My collected minutiae. My C minor mind. My minus sign smile. My, my, I would lose it all. Pawn the nearest forest for its trees. Trade in used gods for new models. On your command, I'd forfeit my firstborn, in whose colorless eyes I could be fairest of them all. To be fair, to be fair, I always wanted to be fair. What is there to say? I traded want away. I went with fear.
0: So you gave us a glimpse a little bit. So I want to talk about the... The origin story a bit here in this poem. You said you started with the idea of of writing a fair trade sonnet. What? With-
1: yeah, I. Many people, and poets I admire, would tell you not to do this. But sometimes the first thing to come is the last line. Sometimes the first thing is a great joke. <laughs> sometimes it's a simile you you come up with, and you think, "Oh, I'll build a whole poem just to make the simile happen." And for this one. I think that the title came first. I actually think uh, I'm a big Gerard Manley Hopkins fan, and I think I really wanted to write a poem called Terrible Sonnet, which I just thought would be funny. (laughs) Um, Hopkins wrote these devastating, despairing poems called his Terrible Sonnets. But now if you just say Terrible Sonnet, it just sounds like a one-star sonnet. And eventually it came to the idea of, yeah, I guess writing a poem about trades you would make or exchanges you would be okay with and as soon as it started to feel like a sonnet, I thought, oh, okay, fair trade sonnet. And I think at that point, I only had the first few lines, which were kind of these jokey, smug, self-satisfied trades of, oh yeah, my dumb king, I'll trade you for a horse. And then I think as it went along, I realized there are concessions and trades and in my life that I would make and things that I would allow. And what's there underneath it? Why would I Why would I give up certain things? Why do any of us give up certain, I don't know, liberties or values or possessions? And it all came down to the word fear, which happens to rhyme with fair, which was a good closing couplet to have.
0: Well, and that's, I mean, one of the things that's, that strikes me in reading the poem is there is, and, and I'm thinking about what you were talking about earlier, there is a kind of in on the joke generosity of the language is familiar enough you know a horse a horse my dumb king our expectation is right my kingdom Mm for and so there's already a way in which the the cultural lexicon we bring to the poem you are helping us trade on that that accumulated knowledge but then there is this moment where and, it's, and again, if we're in a sonnet, it makes sense. There is this moment of, of vulnerability, of the, dis, this, the discovery of the maker that, you no, know, maybe I should really interrogate my willingness to trade on this common vernacular in this way. And as a result of that, what other concessions am I willing to make in terms of my language, in terms of myself, in terms of the things that I am asked to or should give up?
1: You should you should read all of my poems <laughs> if you're gonna say such smart things about them like this. A lot of my favorite poets today are sonnet writers. I'm thinking of Terence Hayes and his American sonnets yeah. for My Past and Future Assassin, Jericho Brown and some of the sonnets in the tradition, Diane Seuss, who just won the Pulitzer for her book Frank. And I think you're right. I mean, we come to the sonnet in some sense because it's it's a form we recognize it's like it's like a pop single. We know how those go, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. But I don't think you write a sonnet unless you have something you have some vulnerability, as you put it, something you want, something you're nervous about, a petition you want to make. The sonnet has such a legacy of love poems, but also of political poems, of pleas, of apologies, of complaints. And I think some swirl of all those feelings and desires maybe led me into the sonnet. It's funny, I I mean, sometimes poetry is like a crossword puzzle. It's a puzzle you want to figure out. It has to be letter perfect or else you won't get, I don't know, the noise the New York Times app plays when you solve it. And sometimes poetry is the most personal expression that you didn't even know you had. And it's weird when those both happened at the same time. Um, I can't think of anything like it. There's no crossword puzzle where you solve it and you realize, oh my God, I'm full of fear. <laughs> um, but I think finishing this poem was kind of like that. I
0: wonder if, if you, do you feel like you tapped the same well? Because my impression is yes. Because one of the things that I feel like animates your criticism is not just a curiosity about the work, but a curiosity about the self. To me, reading your poems and reading your essays, I feel like they come from a similar Christopher Spade's lyric subjectivity, right? There is a, there's a curiosity about the self, not necessarily like seeing yourself in the work, but seeing the ways in which the sonnets you make, the other poems that you read and write about are a way to reveal something about who you are as a, as a person. As a way, too, to think back what you were saying about Garrett is to reveal something about the person you're writing toward.
1: Yeah. I I hope to think that's true. When I first started writing criticism, what you just said was true in a bad way, which is that I really only wanted to write about poets that reminded me of me. Or I would write poets in a way, or I'd write about a poet in a way that suggested, I think I'm really trying to write about styles that I would want to do or i'm currently doing and i wouldn't really consider otherness things that weren't like me i really wouldn't give poets their the center stage that they're due now more and more i try to write about poets that i don't have everything in common with or poets where if i were to impose my own sensibility and taste on them you just know it just wouldn't make sense I have to say, I think Garrett Hongo is a poet that I'm not very much like, a poet who I turn to because he's so different from me. <laughs> um, as I said earlier, some of his poems I would read and I think I'm so glad that another poet came to this because I not in a million years would think to write a poem like this. And then maybe the way that a lyric sensibility in my criticism comes through is, is someone confronting something they don't know how they, they could have done someone learning something from poetry and I learn immensely from a poet like Garrett as it, so many of the poets I, I've had the chance to review for the Sewanee review I think I've only written about poets where I read their poems and think wow how did they do that I don't I mean I couldn't even imitate it <laughs> if I did it would the failure would not be interesting <laughs> but I'll show you how I think through it and I'll show you how it works on me
0: Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at thesuwanereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website, or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Suwannee Review. Until next time, this is the Suwannee Review, new since 1892.